Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening, everyone. Thank you very much for coming to the Hong Kong Theatre tonight to, uh, to attend this discussion of, um, on AI disruption in the job market. I think it's a topic that is in the front of mind for uh, a lot of us. Um, because of the rapidly changing technology, um, the current economic environment, but also we're always thinking about are our skill sets relevant and how can we make ourselves um, contribute more to, to the society that we are in. So a lot of these questions sort of come together. Uh, my name is Christine Chow. Um, I was an emeritus governor of the London School of Economics and I've been in the asset management industry for about 26 years. Uh, working on technology and sustainability. Um, to start off with, I want to highlight some house rules. Um, uh, first of all, uh, for both online and physical audience to the LSE, this is a hybrid event uh, and it's hosted by the Inclusion Initiative. Um, for those in the theater, the fire assembly point is just outside. I, actually, uh, there are no additional instructions as to what we need to do, but that, that's the information. Um, please put on uh, mute your mobile phone so it's on silent uh, so that we do not disrupt the event. And in terms of the running order today, um, I'll be speaking with the panel on their respective subject of uh, expertise. And then there will be a Q&A session in the end. And finally, a book signing by uh, Dr. Grace Lauden and Dr. Michael um, Mar sorry, Murtharishna at the end. Um, so this event uh, will be recorded and we're hoping to do a podcast uh, from this event um, and, uh, uh, unless there are technical issues related to it, but hopefully not. So um, let's, why don't we start off with a brief introduction of uh, the speakers. Um, why don't we start with you, Grace, and then we work through the panel. Yeah, so hi everybody. I am Dr. Grace Lorden. I am on faculty here in the London School of Economics in the Department of Psychological and Behavioral Science. I'm also the founding director of the Inclusion Initiative and also the author of Think Big, Take Small Steps and Build the Future You Want. Uh, so I'm Michael Mithakrishna. I'm also a, a professor at the um, Psychological and Behavioral Science Department. Uh, I have affiliations. Do you want to move the mic? Okay. Um, yeah, I also have affiliations in developmental economics and data science here. I guess relevant to this panel, um, I started my career as an engineer uh, in, in software and computing and uh, kind of switched to working on human evolution and cultural evolution. So how did humans end up in the world that we live in today, both biologically and culturally, which then of course gives you a view on where we're headed into the future uh, with new innovations like AI. Hi everybody, my name's Lucy, Lucy Bailey. I am founder and chief executive of Bounce Forward, which is a UK-based charity that focuses on how do you build psychological fitness. And our passion is about actually teaching mental resilience and emotional well-being in school alongside all of the other academic subjects because we believe the human qualities of what matters will really matter as we, you know, as, as AI develops because uh, what matters to humanity is important that the people that, you know, that are living in the world do that. So, so yeah, that's, uh, and I'm really looking forward to the discussion tonight. 
I'm Leslie Wilcox. I'm a professor emeritus. I used to be in the Department of Management here. I've been studying, well, was working initially as a project manager in IT since 1980, and I've seen many iterations of new generations of technology, and I've always been intrigued about what happens <clears throat> when that mysterious thing happens when technology hits an organization. And uh, it's, it's always been absolutely fascinating as different generations of technologies come over the hill, and I'm really interested to see how this one's going to turn out. And with that, let's start with the first question, Grace. What got you interested in the topic of AI and future of work and skills in your research that you dedicate you know, your, your research time and topics to this mix of interesting subjects? So I think the first time that I became interested in this, I went to visit Ocado and I got to see the early technology where they had basically were trying to replace pickers with robots and I became really interested in that uh, for two reasons. Firstly, I bought some shares in Ocado, which it took a long time, but they turned out to be okay. <laughs> but secondly, I wondered what would happen to the pickers and what were the type of jobs. At that stage, I was interested in kind of people who were on minimum wages. What, what about the type of jobs that would still be available for people who were low skilled and what were the type of jobs that were becoming redundant? Because I didn't have to go far, you know, kind of look, looking to see that there were other places aside from Ocado that were doing some really great um, innovations. So I worked alongside um, my colleague Cecily Justin and we analysed patents and we reclassified jobs that were automatable um, as compared to what was done by um, a, a gentleman in MIT called um, David Author, which everyone kind of accepts as, as, as accurate um, for the fourth industrial revolution. So he did the third industrial revolution, we did the fourth industrial revolution. And what was really interesting in our classifications is that at the top of the professional jobs, things like accountancy and lawyers, we had what we call kind of a polarized, automatable um, type classification where we expected the very high quality accountants and lawyers to survive, but those of lower quality could become automatable in the future. And then we also had some discussions around the technologies that were coming in for cars, etc. And I wrote this, we wrote this, I guess it was seven years ago now, and it was published five years ago, and everyone thought we were incredibly wrong at our predictions of what we actually classified as polarized, automatable, and automatable. But if you look now, with the most recent surge of generative AI, we were right. Patents were a really great prediction of what were the jobs that can be automatable, um, and what are the jobs that are likely to be polarized automatable. And since then, we've, um, with Cecily again, we've been lucky enough to enter a partnership with Citibank, and they've given us access to data that we can kind of scrape. And what we've become interested in is thinking, if we look even further forward and take the flows of jobs, which is basically job adverts, as a proxy of what's been happening over the last 10 years, can we learn anything about jobs that are becoming redundant, and more, more, which is more interesting, skills that are becoming redundant and skills that are becoming more popular? And what I found fascinating by kind of looking at this, what you would expect comes out, so data science is on the rise, and if you are a data scientist in the room tonight, you get a wage premium even now, and we're predicting as you go forward, congratulations, um, and you're predicting as you go forward that that will sustain. What's interesting about data science, though, is that there's no definition of data science. So over the last 10 years, it's changed an incredible amount. So the things people are getting rewards for are actually changing, which means if you're a data scientist, you need to be adaptable. And I'm going to use the word term soft skills, which I don't like either, but Lucy will, will go into to why. But you can see this adaptability soft skill being priced in the labor market and people getting a premium. You can see collaborative leadership being priced in the labor market and people getting a premium. And for me, what I've kind of become slightly preoccupied with, which people, other people on the panel 
will have more interesting things to say is, can we teach these skills? You know, so if I was to pick three, I would pick collaborative leadership, adaptability. And the other one I would add is the ability to be in a room with people who have different perspectives to you. And I'm not talking about political, I'm just talking about on ideas, so much easier than what you might imagine. To be in a room with people who have very different ideas to you, who see the world very different, and putting those together, those outlier ideas together, so they end up being better than what they are. And that seems to kind of rely on a lot of skills that we're not teaching in schools, we're not teaching in university. I've been at the LSE for 10 years, and I would say robust discussions, the quantity that I've been kind of in rooms with, both myself and with um, just observing, have actually gone down. And I wonder again whether or not we can teach these skills. So I'm hoping somebody on the panel will be able to, to give some insights into that. So if you're in data science, stay there. But if not, maybe think about focusing on collaborative leadership, really being able to engage um, in, and really being able to engage in these critical discussions. Great that you talk about uh, data science. I think back in the days when I was a student, uh, it was called operational research. It sounds a lot sexier now. That's it does. Word. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, and, and also about um, the polarized um, automation for accountants and lawyers. If we look at, we, we read the news, many of the partners at law firms and accountancy firms, they, they pay and they're paid a lot of money. So yeah. um, think about um, uh, income inequality in the society that we, we're facing, but also the skills that, that could be replaceable and, and maybe free up some of those high salary for, um, for other types of jobs. But anyway, let's go on to um, Leslie. Um, you have also been doing a lot of research as well, but also on other consulting type projects in the field of AI automation and the future of work. So, so taking research into, into practice, what are your views on how well companies are adopting these technologies and dealing with the workforce challenges? Yeah. Well, the big storyline, as you know, uh, the default headline is there's this 10 to 13 digital technologies headed by AI that are, 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 represent a tsunami uh, which was going to be overwhelmingly adopted quite quickly and that it results in massive job loss. And it, it could be a benefit to mankind, but it's probably very challenging as well. That's the storyline. It's, it's, unfortunately, it's not a very, a very good storyline because the evidence doesn't support it. The, the ability, I'll just focus on the present. Organizations' ability to manage this technology in is very mixed. I'm talking, uh, from a, a, a database of 1,200 organizations I've been following since 2015. Basically, every sector is divided into four kinds of organization. There are the leaders, it's about 20% typically in a sector, that can adopt this stuff, but still experiences staff shortages and various blockages. There are about 25% of followers who are trying to get there there are then about 35% laggards, and then the rest struggling at about 20%. In every sector, this is the case. So clearly, the ability to manage this in is, is questionable. Um, so for example, we're talking about AI today. I think the latest survey was uh, by McKinsey, and they found that uh, potentially AI could replace 10% of the jobs in the USA but also only a third of organizations have adopted an AI capability 
a third of organizations in one business area. That's not a huge take up. And the sort of benefits they're getting are typically 16% cost reduction on average across sector and about 6% revenue growth as a result of these technologies. So you were talking very small figures when you compare it to the headlines. And there, is a, there are very good reasons why organizations struggle. Um, first of all, they're all siloed. There are eight silos that you have to transform if you're going to introduce digital technologies in a meaningful way. Processes, structure, strategy, skills, um, data technology, uh, managerial mindsets. You're fighting a, a, a losing battle against this kind of siloed organization. Not surprisingly, if you're a startup, it might be a lot easier. Um, there's also, and this is not well documented, but I'm finding that the absorptive capacity for change in organizations is, is running out. Organizations can't move this fast, as fast as the technology is being researched and created. So there's that problem. Then there's the actual problem with the technologies. So if we talk about AI, we've heard some serious problems with it. Well, I wrote a paper for the LSE Business Review that said, well, there are actually nine major challenges you have to deal with before you can implement this stuff. It's brittle, it's good at one or two things. Generative AI is an exception to that, which is why it's interesting. It's greedy, it needs large data sets and lots of energy. It's opaque, it's a black box problem that we have. It's hackable, God knows it's hackable. It's shallow, it doesn't really, it doesn't understand in any way what it's doing. I mean, there is a, what I call a reverse Polanyi paradox. Uh, Michael Polanyi came up with this saying that humans know more than they can say. Well, with AI, it says more than it knows. In fact, it doesn't know anything. So, uh, in, in the true sense of the word, and we'll come back to this human issue later on. It's invasive. Uh, my friend Shoshana Zuboff said once, privacy has been now been extinguished. It's a zombie. It's fakeable. We've seen plenty of examples of that. And it's amoral. It has no moral compass. So this is where humans, humans in the loop become extremely important, of course. So there's massive challenges here, and it, all this stuff wants to come with very severe health warnings in terms of social responsibility and, uh, and other reasons. And the last point I'll make is about where is the workforce moving to and explain this. Well, there is a big opportunity. The opportunity is moving to what I call the digitalized flexible organization. The flexibility comes from um, having a core periphery model. Core, core workers will be uh, well treated, they will provide functional flexibility, and they will benefit from IT and technology and AI. The peripheral workers are variously disadvantaged in their relationship to the organization, which becomes increasingly transactional as you go through agency workers, uh, outsource, open talent economy, uh, gig workers, ghost workers. I'll come back to that if you don't know what I'm referring to. Um, so, um, but they give numerical and functional flexibility. What, 
digital technologies give you, and this is the promise, it gives you three more flexibilities. First of all, it gives you locational flexibility. We've heard about remote working. Secondly, it gives you temporal flexibility, 24 by 7 working, for example. And thirdly, it gives you labor replacement flexibility using automation or um, robo-sourcing over the cloud or using AI. Uh, now, this all has big challenges, and I'll come to that if I get the chance when we talk about the future. Wow, Leslie, that's a, a lot to, to pack into that perspective. So Grace has talked about the skills that we need um, in, the, in the new and the future of work, and, and now you talk about, in reality, actually, it's not so simple. Um, so going to, maybe may I ask Michael, so from a, as an educator, how, how do you think that, what do we need to do in education in order to prepare the yeah. workforce with these kind of challenges that we've talked about? Yeah, so I mean, uh, one, of the, one of the big breakthroughs, I would say, in our understanding of um, humans and human evolution is that a lot is going on in our teachable software, things that we often take for granted. So, you know, schools, teachers, how to reason, they teach us to sit down like you guys are doing right now and listen to someone in the front. Uh, they teach us how to count, things that our ancestors couldn't really do. But schools, you know, became formalized and became compulsory with the first industrial revolution. It was kind of the factory model applied to creating good factory workers. Like, let's give people the minimum set of skills they're going to need to work these factories for us. So let's teach them how to read. Let's teach them how to count. Let's teach them how to absorb information, accept instructions, and sit quietly and do what they're told to do. <laughs> um, in many ways, schools haven't really kept up with not only a, you know, a post-industrial society, but an information economy, and now certainly an AI economy. And it's in very few places that you start to see a shift away from that. Um, I was in Estonia last month because they had, in, in, in 1991, was, that was the end of the post-Soviet occupation, 1997, they said, okay, look, we're a small country, we don't have a lot of resources, everything depends on the future of our people and what's in their heads. So how do we leap ahead of everybody else? So what they did was they looked all around the world, and this is kind of, you know, to what Grace's point about kind of being social, they looked around the world and said, what are the best practices from everywhere and how do we deliver this in the best possible way? And they incentivized their teachers to do this. And so, very quickly, they ended up at the top of the PISA table. So these are scores given to students all around the world. They are ahead of every other Western country on math, on reading, on science, and they spend less per pupil than the OECD average. They also, one of the things that they did was invest in technology. 1997, so they were thinking ahead, and they said, we're gonna introduce reading, writing, arithmetic like everyone else, but also algorithms in elementary school. We're gonna teach people to be thinking in ways that make them well adapted to using technology. And so now they have the highest number of unicorn companies per capita anywhere else in the world. So these are $1 billion companies per capita, which is astonishing, right? So I went there and I said, you know, I spoke to the education minister who, um, who had established this, as well as some of the leaders at the time and the current leaders. I said, where are you going? And they said, well, the next wave is AI, and a lot of education systems around the world are ill-prepared because they're stuck in a kind of, kind of path dependence. So we need to figure out how do we break out of that? So one of the ways that they do that is they give schools and municipalities a lot of autonomy to be able to go in any direction. And they test different things because none of us knows exactly what the future looks like. None of us knows what's going on. And so in, in many ways to outcompete AI, we kind of have to put the human collective brain together and try different things. So I'll give you an example of something they're trying. So uh, in 30 schools right now, they're flipping homework and schoolwork. 
The question is, how can a teacher possibly teach to 25 to 30 children of different abilities? What ends up happening is the top end gets ignored, the bottom end doesn't get as much attention as they should, and you kind of teach to the middle. So the flip side is, okay, let's give access through now AI as a, uh, as a kind of teacher, as well as the best educators around the world, to children at home, let them go through the material at home, and then come to school and do what they would normally do in their homework based on their skills level. So work, the teacher is not a, uh, a deliverer of knowledge, they're a facilitator. So, you know, this is the kind of thing that more broadly is trying to go, okay, well, what are the skills that are important? Why are we filling our children's heads and, and at the level of education, uh, at, the, sorry, at the level of higher education, university students, with things that they can access because the world's knowledge is at their literal fingertips? When I was in middle school, right, my middle school teacher was like, you better get good at mental math. You're not going to carry a calculator in your pocket. I mean, he didn't foresee the iPhone, right? Uh, I do carry a calculator, and it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't a use, like learning languages. This is, this is my most controversial point. Learning languages might not be a useful thing in a world where we could have instant, like I talk to people on all kinds of like Airbnb, I don't even notice that they're speaking in another language, right? So what are those skills? Well, we know some of them, right? Uh, Grace pointed out some from the empirics, but we can also kind of tell theoretically. Being social, so learning how to work with other people and learning how to work with these new AI agents who are now in our economy is going to become incredibly important, right? Even more so. We can see IQ test scores, for example, are less predictive in, in more recent data than they once were because it isn't just about how clever you are. It's about how you combine knowledge from other people in order to, to answer questions. How to separate signal from noise in a distracting world where not only is AI lying to you, but so are you know, mainstream sources of information or so are people. Like we don't, we're not always accurate sources of information. How do you separate truth from, uh, sense from nonsense? Um, and and I, I would say, you know, as a, as a university educator, a lot of the stuff is easier to do at a university level because it's hard to change, make changes at the kind of element primary school and, and secondary school level, but we can do it here. So if, you're, uh, if your lecturers aren't embracing ChatGPT, uh, you should point them to this podcast. <laughs> Great. Um, actually, Michael, thanks very much for those. Uh, it reminds me of a UK educator, Penn Robinson, many years ago, he has got this um, TED talk, it talks about how we are educated out of our creativity and yeah. now I guess there are other skills that we're being educated out of as well. And let me go to Lucy. Lucy spent a lot of time working with uh, youth and you know, children education. How do you respond to these recommendations of what we actually need to do in education now? What are the challenges though? I mean, Grace talked about soft skills. Um, I don't think there's anything soft about understanding our brains, how they work, the things that are important to humanity, caring about ourselves, caring about other people, learning empathy. None of these things are soft. If I asked any one of you to think about what you were feeling right now, it probably would be quite an awkward question. And yet we're all feeling things and those feelings matter for the world. Because we're not thinking about what we care about, we're not caring about anything, and that's, that's bad for the environment and for us, right? So there's, there's nothing soft about these skills. But I get really sad when I sit in an environment like this, which is, which is sort of, out, I'm, I'm, it's unusual to me, because I'm usually in schools, on the ground, talking to children and teachers, in an education system, which is just not responding to any of the things that have been spoken about so far. Can we, can are, we use the word human skills? Human instead? skills, I love human yeah. skills, yeah. 
We are still um, standing at the front of classrooms, sharing information which is apparently important for children to learn, and then testing the hell out of them to make sure that they're ready to pass exams so that they can end up sitting in the chairs that you are there, potentially earning the, 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 working in the jobs that earn the most money. I think it's wrong. I think we should stop thinking about growth in terms of how much we earn and I think we need to start thinking about growth in terms of the, the, the impact that we have and the difference that we make to the world <coughs> because if you start flipping things and coming at it from that angle we start caring and valuing about the things that I think matter to humanity. So one of the things that we do at Bounce Forward is encourage schools to teach what we call psychological fitness. Psychological fitness is a combination of mental resilience and emotional well-being. At the heart of our lessons are five competencies which come out of sort of neuroscience based on positive psychology and you know those, those sorts of um, sort of strands of work, but five, five qualities. The first is human connection. So the social aspect of it is absolutely at the heart of what matters. Flexible and realistic thinking. If we want children to be able to adapt to the world and to be able to respond to they have to be able to think flexibly. They have to be able to think realistically about what is going on. We teach impulse control. Delayed gratification. We value instant way too much. We want everything now or we want it yesterday. And again, is that good for the, for, for the environment? No, it's not actually impulse control and recognising that, that actually there is some benefits in us not getting everything immediately is actually a benefit to us human beings. Um, teaching self-awareness and compassion. What, what it, who am I like? What, what, you know, what, what is important to me? Who am I as a person? And how can I understand myself? And how does that matter for the people around me? If we don't think about that, what we have is a load of egotistic human beings that only care about what matters to them and not about what matters to anybody else. And again, it doesn't matter. And the, and the, and the final is hope and optimism. And all of, behind each of these things are theoretical um, you know, ideas that, that, that work in terms of what matters to, to human beings. And, and what we're trying to do at Bounce Forward is to get those lessons taught one, one lesson per week for every single week of a child's education. But it doesn't happen because we don't value it. There's no exam that sits at the end of it. So how do we measure if we've, if we've, if we've done it well or not, which is really important for the, the education system. And so we end up waiting until we get to this level of education when people are already adults and thinking about things before we then. And for me, that's, we've got to flip that on its head. And so I might think about how do we use the data to help us shift education as early as possible to make sure that we're teaching children the stuff that matters. And then, and then we've got, rather than um, people that are well adapted to understanding technologies, we've got children who are developing technologies in a way which matters to human beings. And I think that's like, really important. So um, yeah, I don't know if that answered Lucy. your question, but. <laughs> Lots of human skills examples. And um, I was reading this, uh, from Accenture, uh, which was published in March 2023, it talks about, let's go back to the AI disruption and job market. Um, these are the soft skills that are uniquely human. Leslie, how do you think that we can combine these human skills that Lucy was talking about in an AI-infused 
world. We need to work with machines. Where are the opportunities? Where do you see the opportunities? Yeah. Well, I think taking the big picture first of all, a lot of people think that low skills will be obliterated. That's not the case. The evidence is, and I'm speculating to 2030 now, which is always a stupid thing for a professor to do. But anyway, it helps to suggest the trend. Um, if, we, if we look at what's going to be the case in 2030, about 9% of the jobs in 2030 do not exist today. And that's a big skills question. You know, how do we create skills for that? Uh, let me just run through this uh, just, just to, to give you some idea. It's not a case of mostly total job loss when, when you automate. It's usually tasks within a job. So 60% of jobs will be 30% more automated than they were before by 2030. The job loss as a result of yeah, total automation are about 9% in 2030. It's not what Elon Musk is saying, he's telling us. Not that he's done the research. Um, Low-skilled work will go from 44% of the global workforce to about 32%. That's quite a, still a lot of low-skilled work to be done. Um, and the factor that I've always found absolutely intriguing, which no one factors into any of this, is this. They all assume that the amount of work to be done is stable. It's not. It's growing exponentially, 10 to 12% per annum, in my estimation. And therefore, there is a lot more work to be done. So in the end, it turns out that these technologies are coping mechanisms. They are not what is being, they are being presented at, by and large. They are, they are coping mechanisms in a world that is short of productivity, that is short of labor of the right kind, um, and really needs economic growth. To, uh, and, and this is meant to power that. So um, what we're moving to is a place from low skills to manual and uh, sort of middle and high skills. And, um, when you look at that, those skills are going to be, yes, STEM to some extent, you know, the, the STEM skills that are relevant to your particular task. They're going to be cognitive, mainly, much more than physical. And what is interesting um, is that distinctive human skills are going to be more valuable than ever before. I mean, we t I, I used to teach, be a course director of the... Uh, digital innovation and in, digital innovation and information systems master's degree here, and we used to say we're going to teach you about the technology, uh, and we're going to teach you some technical skills. But do you know what the most important skills are for you? They are the following, and we are teaching them: critical thinking, analytical skills, interpersonal skills, leading, influencing, social skills, teaming presentational skills. Now, these are absolutely valuable because there's no real way that all this automation could do any of this. And by the way, these things don't function very well unless humans are in the loop somewhere. They just don't. I mean, I'm speaking 
both as a technologist as well as a, an academic who's analyzed these things trying to work. So, I mean, that's what there I'm going to say. There seems to be some that. complexity in yeah, there, sure. too, as well, because at the beginning, Grace talked about that maybe accounting and, and legal skills, which we traditionally we would see as subject matter expert yeah. skills. Yeah. But those are the ones that can be automated. But well, the, can I stop you there? No can I stop you there? Legal yeah. is notoriously a dead end game for digital technologies. I mean, I, I wrote a book about them. In, and you only need to talk about some of the experts in legal okay, to know. Okay, we do offer law degree here, so. Sorry? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, it's life, sorry. Um, well, if you talk, we want to talk about the eight siloed organization, go to a legal company. <laughs> sure, then, right. Uh, uh, yeah, so, um, well, uh, with, uh, with that, um, I want to come back to, to Grace. Many complexities we need to, to navigate and um, I guess if you meet someone, the man on the street, when they talk about AI, the first, most likely response is, am I going to lose my job? Mm -hmm. how, how, can you tell us a bit more about what do you think of that? Is there evidence that says that in general? Yeah, I just want to add, so I, I, I just want to kind of piggyback on what Lucy and, and Leslie have said for us before I, before I answer that. So the, what Leslie said is spot on, that the adoption of AI is, is quite slow across the majority of companies, but the superstar firms are adapting at a much higher rate. So if you look at how industries have been shaped over the last number of decades, a smaller number of companies have the power, and those companies, whether it's retail, manufacturing, technology, they are adopting at a much faster rate as compared to their competitors, which, 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 which I kind of find interesting, and we can talk about what those dynamics mean. I evaluated the programme that Lucy spoke about actually Healthy Minds and what was really interesting is that I had conversations with many people over in the Department of Education to explain to them that we shouldn't expect a programme that brings on human skills to increase mathematics scores. They were fixated on it increasing mathematics scores and I think one of the biggest wins I've had in my career is them accepting that a no change in maths would actually be a good thing provided it showed some changes in the things that was actually there to shape. And I think that kind of shows where our Department of Education is, that everything that goes on, whether it's thinking about good decision-making or, 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 or anything else, needs to be moving maths and English, um, English abilities. Um, and, you know, Leslie raised the fact that the, the amount of work to be done is not stable and it's increasing. And, and when you said that, I, I thought about um, our colleague here at LSE who's now passed, who is from the Anthropology Department, David Graeber's book on bullshit jobs which really talked about that there's a number of jobs in our economy that are just not adding value. And if you think about the productivity puzzle, that is something to kind of really, you know, think together. So as a career strategy, it's good to think about, can I be in a job where I'm creating, I'm adding value, so you're actually on the front line, rather than entering into something where the lines are quite blurry. And the reason I say that is because the last technology um, shocks and layoffs were really quite interesting. Um, we had obviously Twitter get into some trouble now X, so they decided to lay off lots of employees and that was followed by layoffs in Microsoft, Alphabet, some of the big companies. And what's really interesting about Microsoft and Alphabet is that they have huge amounts of cash on their balance sheet. So they could have kept those workers on even though their share price was dropping. There was actually no need to let them go. But if you look at the types of workers they were letting go, they align quite well actually with David Graeber's bullshit job type jobs, which are the jobs where you can't see the line to value. Now it doesn't mean the value isn't there, it just means you can't see the line to value. And that really interested me and depressed me kind of in one way, that we don't see companies kind of insulating their employees, which is something that I'm quite passionate about. But I think about it in this particular case as well. If we look at the type of jobs that are likely to be replaced by automation. 
in a static model, as Leslie said, not thinking about what would be the jobs that would be created. The ones that are staying are actually the frontline jobs. And if you think about it at the bottom of the distribution, you can think about kind of carers and nurses. If you think about those high quality lawyers, they're the ones that are going to be having the complex conversations about mergers, about mergers of acquisitions. The data does show an interaction between technology and job loss if you look at the kind of labour markets evidence, and it's really, really small. But the biggest impacts are for older workers. So if you kind of drill into the data, you see the biggest impacts for older workers. And that's, I think that we're failing to reskill our older workers or to offer new skills or kind of upskilling to older workers when they do become redundant and firm. So anyone who's interested in, in policy, it's kind of an interesting thing to think about. I'm an optimist about the future of the work on a whole. I don't think like Elon Musk, we, we won't work. And I think the reason that we won't work is because people believe work is valuable. And as long as we believe work is valuable, we'll stop bringing AI on at the speed that it should come on. So we'll see a much lower transition. But I do think we'll have a transition that will be quite painful for some people in our economy. And the saddest thing about that is that the governments don't really talk about it. So what should the safety nets be for somebody who's 40, their job is gone, and they might need to reskill? So giving them, kind of, giving them more opportunities, and we're, we're quite bad about thinking about that. So optimistic in the long run, but a little bit of pessimism. Yeah, I want to make sure we have uh, lots of time for Q&A. And in terms of the format, I would take three questions at a time um, here, and then we'll move on to online audience. So uh, I do have questions for you both as well, but I think it would be great to open sure. it up. Yeah, yeah. Make sure that I love. Right, one, two, three, to begin with. Is there a microphone? I can see the online So Nick is on, Nick is on, we'll call them out for you. So when you're ready, she can do it. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Jibu Elias. So I'm an AI researcher and ethicist. I created India AI, the Government of India's AI initiative. And I also sit in Global Futures Council for AI at World Economic Forum. I'm here for the AI conference. And I, uh, you know, I'm visiting my alma mater after 15 years. And I saw this conference. And I didn't want to miss it. I have uh, two questions. First is, uh, as much as we, uh, you know, I've been in this space for seven years. And uh, three years ago, when I asked this question of jobs, the normal answer I got was AI can't replace certain human elements, you know. And they said, you know, uh, artists were safe, writers were safe, right? This was the usual answer. Now we see where we stand with uh, <laughs> Midjourney and ChatGPT and all those things. Uh, now, what makes us believe that AI won't be able to replicate these human emotions? Because we have certain humans, we can call them sociopaths or whatever. You don't have this empathy but they can replicate it through their behavior. Now, soon someday AI can replicate that through this communication. So how do you say that these soft skills will make us relevant in the, you know, in the job space? That's the first question. Second is uh, something, um, you know, Grace, you mentioned about older people in the workforce. So one thing I normally hear is that you need to reskill, you need to upskill. I have literally seen many people lose job people who worked as freelancer in platforms like Fiverr, uh, copy editors, uh, so many copy editors work, uh, working in many media organizations losing their job. I know 50, 55 or copy editors losing their job. And what will you tell them to reskill? You can't ask everyone to learn to code. You can't ask a 55-year-old person who spent most of their life doing a particular job to go and learn coding. And even if they do, how effective that will be. So this is uh, how, what will we do with this, this kind of situation. And finally, one thing I always hear, which becomes a 
sort of a cliche statement is that AI is not going to replace job, but uh, more jobs are going to come. Now, statistics says that there's a report by World Economic Forum which says that there will be 2.6 million new jobs in machine learning and data science that will be created by 2030. But then you look, Goldman Sachs report says that 300 million jobs will be automated by the same period. So I think, uh, just to add, it's, it's not like there will be automation, it will be like 10 jobs will be automated in a way that one person can handle that 10 jobs. So, I, I mean, I, I appreciate your positivity, uh, optimism, Grace, but how do we address this challenge? Can I, can I ask where you get the 300 million jobs <coughs> lost figure uh, from? Goldman Sachs report. Goldman Sachs. You just demonstrated your human skills by turning one question to three questions, which is quite amazing. <laughs> um, please. So keep, we keep an eye on the questions, your, your question. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. I'm a master's student in philosophy here at the LSE. And uh, so being mindful that this event is actually hosted by the Inclusion Initiative, um, I'm wondering what the effect of AI will be on people with physical and mental disabilities, because uh, there's a lot of talk about whether it will help them perform better in jobs that normal people do, or whether it will be a hindrance. And I think that there's a lot of a lot to be said uh, in the tech space for adapting technologies like AI to um, people who have physical and mental disabilities who don't necessarily are who are not necessarily able to perform jobs that normal people are able to do. And I think there's different aspects to being physically disabled but mentally disabled. And I think that AI as a cognitive technology really has a lot of potential for um, uh, people with mental disabilities in particular, but also physical disabilities, to contribute more and more powerfully to the workforce and have more impact with their work and through uh, their, their jobs. Thank you. Thank you. Over there, please. Uh, my name is Maria Campillo. I am a consultant in leadership development, mostly vertical development. Um, so I'm hearing a lot about what, how AI will replace skills, and that kind of makes me very happy. Uh, but I want to hear from you, what is it that you're seeing that will be the space that AI will allow us to do as humans to grow vertically? So that we actually spend more time growing capacity, maybe even shifting our levels of consciousness. Like, is there something that it's already being done that you see in the, the space of education, maybe? Okay. So um, just a recap of some of the questions. Um, can AI replicate human emotions? Uh, I think Michael wants to take that. And there's, um, not everyone can reskill. Maybe Lucy, you happy to take that? What would that look like? Uh, impact uh, on people with um, disabilities. Uh, Grace, you happy to take that? And maybe Leslie, the last one. How do we grow vertically? How do we? Grow vertically. Or will AI give us the opportunity to grow? Oh, uh, what yes. opportunities will AI give us? Yes. Well, I've always used technology to augment my ability to do things that I like doing. Um, 
and take away the pain uh, of things that I don't like doing. So, for example, this morning, I spent all my time referencing uh, an editorial for a journal I run, and it, and it was the biggest pain in my life. And I've generated... <laughs> it, it is dreadful. It's made me want to give up scholarship altogether, because... And, it, and seriously, um, you know, it, 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 generative AI can do it. You know, other scholars have used it. And it, and it does it in about five minutes. So, and no pain. I just drink this coffee while it's doing it. So I'm learning that very, very quickly. So you will find, this is my point, you will find unanticipated uses because generative AI is relatively different from all other AI. It spreads itself across six areas and can create uh, content. Um, and it, it spreads itself across text, image, video, um, and most of the other areas that involve some form of data. Coding, for example. I've talked to programmers who said, well, you know, coding is a real pain and accuracy is very difficult. But if I use, learn how to use the technology and I understand what the technology can and cannot do, then this is a, a and a huge advantage to my life. And it makes you more productive, can do. There's a lot of examples where it hasn't. We won't go into that at the moment, not generative AI, but IT generally speaking. And, and there is a serious productivity problem that we have across the major 20 economies. Uh, it's no, the reason that Japan and China and similar countries are automating like mad it's because they have labor shortages, believe it or not. They cannot meet their economic growth targets. Um, and they have a demographic that says, you know, there are lots of old people and they're not going to learn these, these technologies and they're not going to be in the workforce. There are also a lower birth rate going on across a lot of things. So, yeah, that comes back to the question on how do we reskill um, people, maybe. Maybe Lucy, you're happy to yeah, I mean, I hope technology helps, but I, 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 I don't know. I mean, I sort of think we come at it the wrong way round. You know, we're learning a lot now. You know, I, I work in schools where we're spending so much time putting children in alternative provision because they're not able to cope within the mainstream uh, setting because of often, you know, mental disability, physical disability, yes, but often mental disability. What's that about? Surely the education system should be engaging and supporting all young people. I think we've got a lot of um, understanding that things like ADHD and dyspraxia, they're actually strengths and qualities that we should be understanding. So, I don't know, for me, I mean, I hope that technology will help those people when they need to, but I also think we need to come back and, I don't know, start taking hold of what matters to us and the diversity and the different qualities that we have are all valuable in some way. And, in, and if we only value people who think in a particular way or have a skill set in a particular way, we, we, we're missing out huge chunks of, 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 of people that, that matter in the world. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's a better, I, you know, I, I just think I'm flipping these things on its head and thinking about it in the other way. What qualities and what strengths do, do, do all different people um, offer is a much better to think about it rather than how can technology bring those people, you know, plug that gap. 
because um, in education we're seeing an awful lot of young people outside of the system and I think that's wrong. And, and Michael, can, can AI replicate emotions or can we program them to look like us if they do? Well, your look, you know, I, I think, I, I mean, I, I, I actually agree with the, uh, with the gentleman in the front. Uh, we, it's hard to know what AI is capable of doing. Um, I remember 1997, you know, when uh, Deep Blue beat uh, Gary Kasparov, they're like, well, chess. Limited, you know, limited space. Alpha Go, you know, Go. There's no way it's too large a space. And then, no, of course, the Alpha Go. Alpha Go. Yeah, you know, they came along and and, uh, and and beat them. And and no one thought that you know writers and creative people were a threat. They're like, that's definitely a human skill. And here we go. Um, I think it's hard to anticipate it, but when AI turns up, we see kind of two patterns. One is that it raises the average person to a skill level that was previously possessed by only those with the necessary skill. And sometimes it's small. So, you know, in 2006, I think it was Firefox 2 introduced spell check. And for those of you around at that time, spelling on the web was atrocious before then. It was, I mean, honestly, it was awful. And now it's like, it's baseline, people can spell. And so the baseline gets lifted. We're all capable of producing quite good writing now, you in know, American. using ChatGPT. Sorry? In American. Spelling in, in American? Yeah, because you, you put in an English word, no, it you tells can, you that you spelled it wrong. <laughs> you can change, yeah, but the default is American. Right? Oh, yeah. Um, Sorry. But yeah, no, so, you know, so for writing, uh, you know, we can all produce, I, uh, my, I have an illustrator, she was a little annoyed with me because I, uh, I produced something with Chachi, uh, with, um, uh, with Dali 3 very quickly because I needed something done. Now, if it was more complicated, then I would have gone to her. And that's the second thing that AI does, which is that for those who embrace it, your domain skills allow you to use this and move faster on the boring stuff and do something advanced. But only it's those folk who, folks who actually get that premium and who are the, you know, if you want to say 90% disappeared, those are the 10%, right? So there are jobs that disappear because of the <coughs> average effect. So the word computer literally was a job. It was a person who sat there and did math and was computing. And that job has been entirely replaced by what we now call computers, which is a machine that can compute for you, right? So that's a job loss story. But then there's a, the job change story. So, you know, I, I run a team of software developers. They have access to Copilot, they have access to, 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 to GPT-4, and they move about five to 10 times faster as far as I can see. Now, if you t gave that to the average person and said code something up, they're not gonna be able to do that. But because they're domain experts, they're able to move faster and do more and build more quickly. So actually the website, so I got annoyed. People use Linktree, I don't know why they do, it's ugly. So I wanted to just like code up a, a, my own version of that. Normally, you know, it might take me, I don't know, a weekend. I did it in a couple of hours because I used Copilot GPT-4, but that's because I can program. If you just gave that to someone and said program something, it would be difficult for them without that domain knowledge. So I guess my advice would be, yeah, you are gonna see job loss, but those that actually not only uh, survive, but I would say thrive, are those that embrace the technologies and learn to use it in more creative ways than the people around them. It's the same thing. The companies that choose to embrace technology and discover new ways will outcompete the companies that do not. And that's the story of humanity. Absolutely. And you mentioned, like, it reminds me of the movie Hidden Figures. When yes, exactly. Were, the they were computers, yes. yes. Exactly. And on to Grace, uh, impact on um, people with um, different abilities. Yeah, so I mean, and, and it's great that you address this question to the Inclusion Initiative because actually one of my concerns with AI and quantum and, and you know, some things that are coming on stream is that they're being developed by a particular type of person who have particular visions of where the world should be and we're leaving out complete segments where there could be products that would help people with physical and mental disabilities in the workplace, for example, um, 
or if you think about elderly people, how we can actually help them transition into older age in a way in their own homes that's easier. And I think a lot of it is kind of thinking about the beliefs people have about the type of jobs that suit them and how we can actually alter them quite early, you know, kind of giving people a vision of what might actually suit them, even if they don't see their role models in, in, in the jobs. Um, and I also think it's about companies really understanding that diversity isn't just actually about taking a really cute photograph and being able to show that you're doing something that's socially responsible, but having people who represent folk who have physical and mental disabilities because they have physical and mental disabilities themselves in the company will open up types of products that they would not otherwise be, uh, otherwise be thought of. So for me, this is really a story of occupational choice on the one side, the demand, but on the supply side, the firm's doing much more to recognize that there isn't just one type of person in the world and there's actually money to be made from serving the other types, and the easiest way to get that is to have, is to have the representation. Mm. Can, I, can I quickly jump in real quick? Yeah, and then we quickly check okay. if on that. One example that really changed my mind about the role that AI plays is the finance sector in quants, right? We have technology like AI or machine learning algorithms that have been running for a long time, and they're not out of jobs, but it's harder and harder for the average person to get that alpha. But the fact that that industry is huge and people are getting loads of money is because they've found ways to integrate the human with the technology. Any questions online? And then we'll come back Jet to the live. Yes. So uh, online we have one question from Malvina Madochi, who is asking how would the panel assess the impact of AI across different generations? And then there are how couple would, sorry? of... How, would, how can you assess the impact of AI okay. across generations? And then there are a couple of questions in the theme of would the would having AI uh, in the future not increase the existing inequalities within the economic field, especially related to gender and people with disabilities, and would there be bias included for uh, uh, sections of the society which are which are disadvantaged? Yeah, that I think the second one is quite complex to answer, but let's focus on the first one, which is how would it impact uh, generations, and then we'll move back to the. Question one. I'll have question. a shot at the second if you don't mind. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I can give just because I think it was an evaluation question. How can you evaluate it? And I think it's looking at things like um, the jobs people have, the quality of the jobs, the income that they're earning, but then also some of the things that people in psychological behavioral science think about. So happiness, mental health, other things that actually matter in people's lives, and looking to see across generations if there's differences. Um, and I'm guessing given the conversation that we just had that maybe we're not catering to the older generation, the best of the products that are coming out at the moment. Um, and I know that to be true actually from, from, from looking at the sector. But I think um, the second is within generations. So what we can't ignore is what's happening with technology at the moment, even though it might be that there's enough jobs at the end, is that it's hollowing out the job distribution so you have low-skilled jobs and high-skilled jobs. So the inequality that will emerge is, is, is likely to be quite stark without government intervention. So I think looking across generations is an interesting question, but I would also think within generations, how far apart are they in terms of earnings? Yeah, I mean, so this, I, I wanted to take the question because this is a theme that I deal with in the book. I mean, I think AI has, overall, I think it's going to do it it's gonna be horrible for inequality because A, those who control the foundational models are gonna like look at the way that just, what is it, two days ago, Sam Altman announced uh, GPTs and wiped out a bunch of wrapper uh, companies that were building on top of it, right? So that kind of concentration uh, is going to be bad for inequality. There's also the inequality that's engendered because these, you know, so you mentioned tongue in cheek, but you know, the fact that US spelling dominates, 
my, uh, my collaborators, uh, Mohamed Atari and Joe Henrik, have a new paper that shows that GPT's answers are very weird. So Western educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. So all of those things about you know, the Western world, having access to this, it's English speaking, are going to be uh, exacerbated. But on the flip side of that, AI can, because of its use, because of that effect on you know, raising the average, if you like, can be democratizing. So it could, for example, give everyone access to personal tutors or personal information where previously they had to access, they needed to access an expert or would have to access um, you know, things that were for the average, for the Western world, and not specific to their context. But overall, I think it's... Can I, can I make a, one point which, yeah. which is about age? Speaking as a 72-year-old, um, the market, technology market never catered for old people. And it still doesn't, and it's a huge missed opportunity because there are more old people in the world now than there ever have been. And you know, you only got to look at a mobile phone to see that is the case. You know, I'm wearing glasses, okay, and my fingers I've got arthritis. Where is the mobile phone? And how many people? How many millions are there out there? That's just one example. Thank you. Okay, we have. 30 seconds left, with one question here, one question there, and then maybe we can have um, the concluding comments from the panel, please. So I was just gonna ask, um, do you think AI can improve job performance with uh, medical surgeons when it comes to blood retention, <coughs> when it comes to blood retention and accuracy? That's got to be a good question. Second question. What was the question? Can it improve medical? Hello, my name is Munir. I was a school principal, head of school for 10 years, now a social impact consultant, and here's why. Roaming through the halls of an exam five years ago, a year 12 student had the audacity to ask me for a chemistry equation. And I said, number one, I don't remember year 12 chemistry, which is a testimony to failure of education. Number two, it would be unethical for me to share that with you. And he said, well, you can just Google it. Uh, and soon enough, 10 minutes after the bell rang, we stepped outside the hallway and we Googled it. And, and that, for me, exemplified some of the failures of, of the modern educational system. Now, as a head of school, you will know that we are often susceptible to external pressures. So we have little autonomy in setting the agenda of what is the curriculum and what is important. There's government inspections, accreditations, parent perspectives. So in taking a systems-based approach to education, can you give some examples of key players who are leading the field in redefining what education is in light of AI disruption and what future skills and relevance could look like? Thank you. Who would like to answer the first question? I, sorry, I can't, I can't hear the question. I can, I can go first. Please, go ahead. Yeah. Um, so machine learning algorithms are a function of you know, the algorithms, but also the data access and, of course, energy. Uh, with the medical, in the medical sector, yeah, of course, you know, if, you, if you had all of that data together, radiologists might be able to do a better job, but often the barrier is access to that because they're medical records. Um, there are, you know, China, for example, is, is a world leader in um, facial recognition. What do you think that is, right? Because they have weaker privacy laws and they're able to use that data to build better models. They might also be able to build better medical models as a result of that, and maybe other countries can buy those technologies off them. So the answer is, in theory, yeah, it could revolutionize health and democratize it and give more people access. In, in practice, you know, uh, for good reasons, some of the regulatory environments can prevent that. And on the second question? 
I mean, I don't think I don't think there any education, uh, you know, at, at, at child level that are leading in this space at all. I think they're we're floundering around, like trying to, you know, for all the reasons that you said, like the, the what the system values is su is such a pressure that you know ground up, which is what you need, like ground up change is just. It, 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 it's impossible, it's, you know. I would love to see a school that was sort of leading the way, but I don't know. But do, do you know? Do you know what? No. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, does, does yeah. anybody know any schools that? Are yeah. I mean, you know, I previously. I mean, I think centralization is a big problem. So, um, thank you, Ramakrishnan, the former head of the Royal Society. He referred to the A levels as no longer fit for purpose yeah. because it's overly, you know, three to four subjects. Like in a world where often it's the interconnections between subjects. You have kids who are walking around without any knowledge apart from those, those three or three, four subjects that they took. So in this country, I think that's a, that's a problem. Um, you know, people opting out of the education system might, might, you know, go, might, might allow them to try different models. Um, but in other places, you know, I mentioned Estonia, charter schools in other countries, they have the ability to, to experiment and try to integrate these technologies and see what works. And then maybe others can learn from them. So. Well, if I may add, add to that, then um, if the system is not working as we expect to, it is our individual responsibility to try to break out of that prison too. So it is about taking ownership as well. And with that, I would like to ask each of you to have a one minute concluding comments before we go into the book signing session. Uh, Leslie, may I ask you? Well, I think one's got to take this very personally. and. Uh, so I think there's a couple of things you could do. One is you really do have to listen to the technologies and where they're going. Um, I, I mean, I I'm, don't like technology very much. I've worked it in for years and I've seen the imperfections and the poor software trundled out as um, version five as, as an improvement. Well, the first one was so awful. And it went on like that. And there was a point when I gave up one supplier because uh, because it just didn't do it anymore for me, a major supplier. So you have to listen to the technologies very carefully and tell them what, what is it telling you about your life and where, where you are going and what you need to do. Secondly, I think you have to prepare yourself. And I, I, I don't like these comments about what is this poor person going to do? They've done this all their life. and You've got to prepare yourself for lifelong learning and skills development. Uh, I mean, I've done it all my life, uh, and so you just have to accept that that's what the game is that you're in. And um, don't think that if you're not technologically inclined that you have no work to be done. There are eight billion people on this planet that tells me that people want to interact with one another. They're not going to just sit around <laughs> doing nothing. And they're going to do work together. They're going to fight wars as well against each other. But they are very active, and so these human skills uh, that are very distinctive to humans, and I, I really think there are some that cannot be replicated by automation, and, you know, I'm happy to be proven wrong at some stage, but uh, I can't see it myself, not least in my lifetime. Um, those distinctive human skills are worth working on. They are hugely valuable, you will find, when you actually get out there and start doing work. Thanks. Lucy. I mean, f f 
for me, um, you know, you said what matters, you know, the meaning and purpose that we have in the world is the thing that matters the most. Um, I mean, I'm a natural pessimist, but when I sit on a panel listening about AI, I get even more pessimistic. Um, <laughs> because for me, the question is, why does what I do matter? And why does it matter in the world? And, you know, we are social beings, and that, to me, has to be at the forefront of any development in any, in any shape and form. So, for me, um, you know, and, and, and meaning and purpose, um, you know, part of that is, is, is being able to connect with other people and have, you know, social companions and all of that stuff. So, yeah, I, I remain hopeful, but I'm quite pessimistic. <laughs> yep. is my what's point. Michael's view on that? I'm quite optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, look, times of rapid change are profoundly disruptive, but times of rapid change are also opportunities for people to, to get ahead, in a, you know, because everything is changing. We saw that during the Industrial Revolution, artisans got replaced, but, you know, the great industrialists emerged. Uh, we saw that during the, you know, the, the late 90s and early 2000s with the, with the real boom in the internet, right? Um, many people made a lot of money and made some real strides in their lives, and we're seeing that again today. So I think, you know, the barrier to entry is actually lower in some ways, because you don't have to be a technologist to be able to talk to these technologies in, 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 a, human, in a human language. Um, so I would say embrace it, think about how you can do it, and you have a comparative advantage because you know your domain, and so you may think of ways to use it as other people don't. And I walk the walk in the sense that, you know, AI has become an everyday part of my life and my work routine. Uh, and with my kids, you know, they, they're kind of uh, opted out of the system a little bit in terms of education because of these, of, because of these new opportunities. So I would say to all of you, figure out what you're good at and then think about how AI can multiply that. And Grace? Yeah, I mean, I think I kind of stick on the same theme as, uh, as three other panelists. I think it's, it's kind of good to think at an individual level, how are you going to get those skills, those kind of continuous-based skills. And you know, if you look at the, um, the funding across companies, it, there's big heterogeneity in it. So maybe you don't make a decision based on a salary, but you make it based on how much they're actually going to give you to get skills and how much they curtail the skills. Mm -hmm. So for example, some of the deals that people are doing on their contracts now, they need to do 30% of their budget for company skills that the company chooses, but 70% they can do whatever they like. And you should really embrace that and go wide and, and become a generalist. And I think, you know, we spoke kind of about people getting reskilled along their careers. Everyone in this room is probably going to have multiple different careers in their lives. I've been in one job as, as, a, as an academic, but what I've actually done, the content has changed so much over the last 10 years. I couldn't recognize the job that I had 10 years ago. So you'll either be like that, where you'll adapt within a job, or you'll go out and get a, a different kind of type of job title. So I'm optimistic, and I, I never thought I would say this in an event like this, but I was really optimistic about Boris Johnson's levelling up scheme, <laughs> uh, believe it or not, um, because the idea behind it was really good. You know, we leave school at 18, you have an amount of money that the British government give you, and you can cash it in when you're 22, 32, 42, 52, 62, sending signals to people when they're young that actually learning isn't necessarily over for you, and you can choose to wait. And I do hope, you know, whoever is the next government, that they resurrect something like that, recognising that people can retrain at any points in their lives. And one thing that's been a thread of what we said today is beliefs. Do you believe that there's going to be more jobs created? Do you believe that AI can take over jobs? Do you believe it's going to be positive and negatives? Beliefs shape the future because ultimately human beings are choosing. So if we decide that actually everybody can you know, retrain and there's going to be systems there at 40 and you exit your education system at 16 with that belief, we will see more people retrain. And with that today we've learned, we've, we've 
discuss some more skeptical views of AI and the future of work. We have a more optimistic view of what it could look like and the books that you can read about what those might mean. So um, there will be a book signing just outside uh, after this session. So please join me in Thanking the amazing panel that you have today. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.